Well, good morning. I feel a little bit like a stranger. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been up here. It's, uh, it's good, to, good to see you all and to be worshiping together this morning. We will be continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, or picking back up in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, so you're welcome to start turning there and brushing the dust off of those pages. While you're turning there, I um, wanted to just kind of segue in. Shortly after Elise and I found out we were expecting our firstborn, she presented me with a list. You may know what this list was. It was a list of baby names I was allowed to choose from. I actually need to correct something. There were two lists. One was first names. One was a combination of first and middle names. In all seriousness, though, it was helpful to, we had to start somewhere. It was good to have a, a list, and I knew where she stood at least. But as I got that list, I started looking over it. There were two names that jumped out right away. I didn't even think I made my way through the list. And the first name was the name Shiloh. You may know that our firstborn, her name is Shiloh. The second name is Hope. You may not realize her middle name is Hope. It's Shiloh Hope. And those names jumped out to me for a reason. They jumped out to me because of the theological significance of what they meant. And it also happened to be a time in my study and in our lives that they meant a lot to us. The name Shiloh goes back to Genesis 49, at least that's where it's first mentioned, where it's, the, it's one of the earliest references to the hope, the promise, and the expectation of the Messiah, the one who will rule and reign. And hope, when applied to a Savior, when applied to that Messiah, describes what all believers, all those who trust in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ, can and should have. An expectation, an excitement, a desire for the return of the Savior, who has already come once to redeem and will come again to rule. And that's the reason that persons thronged about Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, just a few chapters earlier than where we are now, when he entered Jerusalem, they thronged around him singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Anticipating his arrival to reign. Throughout the New Testament, this hope breaks forth from Israel, begins to spread throughout the entire world. Peter describes Jesus as the living hope of those who love and trust in him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul elaborates on this hope in Romans chapter 8. Bear with me as I read just a few verses that describe and highlight what this hope entails. He says in verse 18, For I do not consider the sufferings of this present time to be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself also will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This hope for the believer is hope in the future promises of God and Christ Jesus. Promises concerning his return, his reign, his kingdom, and promises of eternity. We read some of those this morning from Revelation. And as we study Scripture, what becomes clear is that the descriptions, the warnings, and the promises of the end of this age and the beginning of the next are intended to provide us with hope. They are to be a source of joy for the follower of Jesus Christ. We describe this future time with the theological term eschatology, which is a way of saying last things, as a study of last things, which when you think about it, really isn't the best description. It only describes one half of the story. Because these promises, they concern, yes, the end of this world as we know it, but it's the beginning of the age to come. It's the beginning of eternal life, of reign with Christ. It contains the promises of the new heavens and the new earth. So it's all about new things, not just the last things. We're not going to change terms this morning, so we'll just have to remember that when we talk about eschatology and as we really study a couple of chapters that deal a lot with eschatology, that we are not simply talking about the end of things. We're talking about the beginning of all things being made new. And the Word of God gives us a message of hope because it speaks about the return of Jesus Christ and the end of sin and death and suffering. Really, one of the great tragedies of Western Christianity, especially over the past 150 years, is the extent to which eschatology has been used to distract, divide, and damage the fellowship of believers and churches. It's not to say in the least that the study of eschatology is unimportant. It's extremely important. We're going to dig into that over the next several weeks. They're like children who are given a gift intended to bring them happiness, but instead fight over it and bicker over it, we quickly forget why God gave us all of these teachings concerning the return and the reign of Christ. So our job as we open up our Bibles to Matthew 24 and look at chapters 24 and 25 will be to keep this reality front and center. That whatever the differences of interpretation we might have over some of the details... We are in the same family and we share the same hope, the return and the reign of Christ. And this message is given for our joy and for our sanctification as we hope and wait in Him. So that's going to be our mindset as we study over the next few weeks, and we'll remind ourselves of that as we begin to observe these two chapters concerning a great deal of Jesus' teaching concerning the end of this age and a little bit on the age to come. I'm going to read a little bit of Matthew 24 this morning, but before I do, I'm going to go ahead and assign you some homework. Over the next couple of weeks, because I won't be preaching next week, but over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to ask you to read Matthew 24 through 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21, 5 through 36. That's Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13. And then Luke 21, 5 through 36. These are parallel passages describing this same time and the same message of Christ. I'm asking you to read it at least two times. And I do that because otherwise we'll spend half of our time on Sunday morning just reading the text. 
So to avoid that and to enrich our time together and our study together, because I promise it will do that, I'm going to ask you to plan to read through that in between our times together on Sunday. This morning, I'm going to read just the first three verses as we set the stage for Jesus' fifth and final discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. Follow along with me. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And as we'll see, Jesus answers them and continues for two chapters of teaching on this. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the hope and the promises we have in Christ. I pray that you would help us to enrich our love for Christ, our love for you through our study of the Gospel of Matthew, of these chapters in particular. I pray that you would help to guide our thinking and our understanding. Father, we rejoice in the fellowship we have through your Son. Father, we thank you that we can come and be given so much hope, find so much hope in the midst of a world that is in utter turmoil. People are hurting, both individually and nations as a whole. Father, we pray that we would not only have hope for ourselves, but we would be bearers of that hope, proclaimers of that hope. Help us to be faithful to do that. In your name, amen. Well, it has been a couple of weeks since we have been in Matthew, so just a quick reminder of where we are at. Jesus, you remember, arrived in Jerusalem. He arrived two days ago. And when he came in, he entered the shouts of, praise and cries of Hosanna to the son of David. And then shortly after he had arrived, he had a public confrontation with the religious leaders. More specifically, he went into the outer courts of the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and those selling the the doves or the pigeons, disrupted really the bottleneck, the main flow of Resources through that, what had been called the Bazaar of Annas, had been made into a mockery. And the past two days have really been a blur, an intense and emotional blur for all those who would have been with Jesus as he's been healing everyone who comes to him. Remember, this is the Passover. By some accounts, as many as two million Jews flock to Jerusalem and the outer areas during this time to offer sacrifices. So many people came that they... The priests were from sunup to sundown slaughtering the sacrifices, covered in blood. And so it was all of those who were coming, many hurting, looking for healing. Jesus heals them all. He's doing all of this under the glaring looks of death from the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees who have formed this unholy alliance against him. In fact, they take turns interrupting Jesus, as we've seen with questions intended to trap him and turn the people against him. And what's really no surprise, if you've been with us through even some of the, our study of the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus is never once thrown off balance by their attacks. In fact, he answers them in such a way that it completely silences them. And so at this point, 
the religious leaders have slithered back into their dens, where, they are to- where we are told they are now plotting how to put Jesus to death in a way that, that does not cause them to fall out of favor with the people. They want Jesus dead, but they want the favor of the people. So they're trying to figure out, how do we do this? Now, if you've been with us through the study of the Gospel of Matthew, you probably feel a little bit like we've gone in slow motion. Chapters 5 all the way up through chapter 20 have covered three years of Jesus' life, approximately. Chapters 21 through 25 cover three days. It's clear that the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, wants us to slow down and pay attention to this final week. And think about it, that makes sense. When you know you are wrapping something up, when you're nearing the end, you try to fit in as much as you can. It it doesn't make anything earlier unimportant or less important, not at all. But now there is a sense of urgency because the end is drawing near. And that's what we have here. There's an urgency around what is being shared, what is being taught, and what is being done. Well, Jesus has finished his last interaction, and really it was more of kind of a final word about these religious leaders before at the end of Matthew 23, turning to Jerusalem and lamenting, grieving over her spiritual state. And if he, as he would have been st- standing on the Temple Mount, he would have been down, looking down over Jerusalem as he had done that. And as he wrapped up saying that they will not see me again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he prepares to leave the temple. And as Jesus is preparing to leave, having, heading home, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been responding to the verbal attacks of the religious leaders. He's, heading back to where he's been staying, which is in Bethany, which is on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And as he's leaving, those disciples are marveling at the architecture of the temple. It may seem a bit of an odd thing to do in such an intense and emotional time. Got distracted pretty quickly. What I I marvel at is how patient Jesus is with them. He takes their amazement, their commentary, and he turns it into one of the most condensed teachings, certainly that he provides on the end of the age and his second coming, and the judgment of the wicked that we have, not just from his teaching, but in all of Scripture. Notice how patient Jesus is with them. He doesn't rebuke them for talking about the architecture and being distracted when, quite literally, the fate of the world is at stake. In fact, as I look at the way he responds to them, not even correcting them for doing that, I'm challenged at how quickly I become impatient, whether it's expecting immediate sanctification of others, it's expecting maturity. It's expecting a seriousness. It's a good reminder to follow the example of Christ. But notice, that doesn't mean he lets them continue in their superficial conversation. Instead, he cleverly draws their attention and minds back to what is of eternal significance. And so begins Matthew 24. As I begin to teach Matthew 24 and 25, I, I really feel I need to offer something of an apology because I feel wholly inadequate to teach this text. It's not from lack of study, but rather because I need to acknowledge at the beginning that there are several places as we deal with eschatology and in times where I'm going to have to admit I don't know for sure. I have convictions, I have conclusions, but I don't have certainties over every single aspect of end times. 
I've read this text, as well as the passages from Mark and Luke, at least a dozen times. I've read them in English. I've read them in Greek. I've read many commentators. I've read many additional resources I've prepared to teach, and there's many more that I'll continue reading. And at the end of the day, whether it's amillennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist, and I'm read and I'm reading them all, no one has presented a perfectly clear interpretation of every aspect of the timing of these texts that we get into. It's a hard section. It's probably why books continue to be written and discussions continue among men and women who love the Lord and love His Word. But there's something else I want to say at the beginning and at the forefront. And that's that the issue is not that we have an imperfect text. The issue is that we are imperfect interpreters. And so we continue to give attention and to pray and to humbly draw conclusions and opinions. But the attention that is given to so many of the specific details of these passages by those that study them and the debate and disagreement over them can cause us to lose sight of the forest while staring at the bark of the tree. And that's why our goal each week is going to be to pull ourselves out of the hard work of interpreting and to ask, how does this bring me hope? How does this make me love Christ more? How does this make me long for heaven? And eternity? And how does this make me love my neighbor and those around me more? That's what we want to be asking as we study this text. Remember, all of this, so much of this teaching has been tied to loving your neighbor. What is the greatest commandment and what is the second greatest commandment? Verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 24. I'm going to refer, as I've already mentioned, to Luke 21 and Mark 13 quite a lot through this study. If you don't already have multiple bookmarks in your Bible, I'd encourage you to grab a piece of paper, maybe tear it in half, and put them in both of those chapters so that you can quickly turn there, not just today, but in the weeks to come. But look with me at Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out of the temple, was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, Luke 21, verse 5, colors the picture just a bit further for us. While some were talking about the temple, it was a, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Mark 13, 1 adds even further. Going out of the temple, one of his disciples said, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stonework and what wonderful buildings. I, I kind of like how Matthew and Mark describe this scene almost like the disciples think Jesus is completely oblivious and has completely missed the grandeur of the temple. They come running up to him, have you seen this? Have you seen what we're looking at? Where we're standing? This was the second temple, also called Herod's temple. You may remember that the first temple, the one built by Solomon, was destroyed around 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And so rebuilding had commenced when the exiles returned some 70 years later, around 516 B.C., and was completed a few decades after that. But it was significantly expanded in the turn of the, from AD, B.C. to A.D., first century B.C. and to the early A.D., by Herod the Great. Josephus, a first century Jewish writer who provides us many accounts that help us to better understand the historical setting of Israel at that time, we also have several descriptions from other rabbinic literature and writings that have been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we learn a lot of things from these sources. Herod expanded the temple complex from what was about 17 acres 
to 36 acres. He more than doubled the temple complex size. Herod wanted a legacy that would last forever, so he spared no expense, or maybe I should say he spared no expense from everybody else. He imposed heavy taxes to complete his building project. And it's believed that this building project of the temple was the largest building project in the entire world during the first century B.C. Not ever, just in the first century B.C. The temple was designed to be nine stories high with walls that were, get this, 16 feet thick. Many of the blocks weighed over 100 tons. In case you need a point of reference, that's equal to a full-grown blue whale or a Boeing 757 airplane. Like I said, many of them were that big. There's one that weighed over 600 tons. I don't know how you move one blue whale, much less six of them. The stone was 44 feet by 11 feet by 16 feet. That was one rock. It had massive courts, the largest of which was the court of the Gentiles. That's where all that money changing and selling was going on. That's where it had become a mockery, or as Jesus called it, a den of thieves. It had magnificent columns and architecture wherever you turned. And there was lots of gold, gold everywhere. In fact, you may remember back in chapter 23, verses 16 through 17, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for their promise-making practices where they swear by the what? Gold of the temple. Josephus describes the temple facade as covered with these massive plates of gold. In one place, Josephus describes nine massive gates decorated, adorned with gold and silver. One section he writes, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could, wanted for nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides, with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons strained to even look at it and were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon them and polluting the roof. To say that the temple was dazzling and beautiful was an understatement. And that's why the disciples were marveling at it. Marveling as they were walking out. And Jesus, being the ever-gracious teacher, does not rebuke them for marveling at its beauty. But he uses it as a teaching moment and reins them back in and redirects their thoughts. In verse 2, we read in Matthew 24... And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Everything you've been pointing out to me, everything you thought I had missed, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Luke 21, 6. As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And in Mark 13, 2, we hear the same thing. Do you not see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. I think they all heard it and got it. And Jesus knew what he had done. He hadn't given them all the answers. All he had done is put a stone in their shoe or more accurately a pebble in their sandal. Something that they couldn't ignore. It was going to bother them. You can't get it off your mind. There's no way they could ignore a comet like that. At least not very long. So a few hours later, while sitting on the Mount of Olives, probably enjoying the cool breeze of the late afternoon or the early evening, the disciples come to him, and boy, do they have questions. 
In rapid-fire succession, they start firing off their questions. Here in verse 3. Now, depending how you count, especially when you read all three texts together, there's either two, three, or four questions. The first is rather obvious here in Matthew 24. He came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? The second question begins, And what will be the sign of your coming? Whether there's a third question or not depends on how you take and of the end of the age, specifically the and there. Are they asking thirdly, what will, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Or there's this technical term for the and there. It could be what's called exegetical. It's explanatory where it's saying, what will be the sign of your coming, which is the end of the age? The fourth question is found in Mark and Luke, where the disciples ask about not only the sign of Jesus' coming, but they also say, and the sign of these things, that is, the overthrow of the temple. I tend to see there's four questions, two each of when and two each of what are the signs. And they're directed at two specific topics. First, the overthrow of the temple in Jerusalem, and secondly, the second coming of Christ, the returning of Christ and His glory, and what that entails. When Jesus spoke about the overturning of the temple, I think it's likely that the disciples for the past couple of hours have been mulling about in their minds, maybe even discussing amongst themselves, several Old Testament texts. Maybe one like Zechariah 14 that describes a siege on Jerusalem, the destruction of the city, and then introduces the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of His kingdom, followed by judgment and victory over the nations. They would have thought, well, if He's talking about the destruction of it, the Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, then it can't just be that. It's also got to be His coming. And so it makes perfect sense that they ask these questions. Not only that, Jesus has been reminding them, teaching them that He must come again. This began back in Matthew 10, where we read in verse 23 that He's got to come again to complete His work. But whenever they persecute you, to one city, in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, if he's standing right there with you and he says, until the Son of Man comes, then he has to go away again so he can come again. And even more explicitly, Jesus told them in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. There is another coming, and that's when the work will be wrapped up. And the only way he can come again in glory is if he goes away and returns, which is exactly what we are told. I'm skipping ahead in the story, but I'm going to assume you know a lot of this. It's what we're told when he ascends into heaven. Having died and been resurrected, he ascends. And we get an account of that ascension in Acts chapter 1. And I won't read all of it, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus has risen. And the disciples are still standing there with their heads looking straight into the sky, gazing up. It's almost like they're waiting. Okay, you said you were coming again, so we'll just keep looking because you're coming again. And so, knowing this, Jesus sends two messengers, angels. While they were gazing intently into the sky, two men, white clothing, stood beside them. You can imagine the, the little bit of a fright when they start speaking. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? 
This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have seen, as you have watched him go into heaven. And so then he reminded them of the commission, what they were to do, to go into all the earth, begin preaching the gospel. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And this is really the setup. This is what, answering these questions, is what Jesus will do over the next two chapters. Answering questions about the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple. Answering questions about his second coming and what that entails. But before we wrap up this summary, this introduction into the questions that we'll then be looking at over the next several weeks as he answers them, there's a couple of questions I think we need to ask as we begin a study like this. These are good introspective questions. First, is Christ's return a source of hope and joy for you in the midst of a painful and toilsome life? And we know it's supposed to be, right? But let's put that out of our minds for a second. Okay, I know what I'm supposed to answer. I'm not going to ask you to answer publicly. Think carefully. Is it actually a source of joy and a source of hope for you? Not an escape, but does it help you refocus? Does it help you to remember why you're still on this earth and what you're to be about as a disciple of Jesus Christ? If the answer is no, why do you think that is? If you were answered honestly, no, or maybe you answered not always, sometimes. And that's a good, honest answer. We, we need to have I answer that sometimes. That's how I have to answer it. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Why is that? Why are there times when it doesn't give me that joy and that hope? I think, one, I'm not studying it enough. I don't know enough about it. It's not fresh enough in my mind. By some accounts, as much as 50% of Scripture is anticipating the return of Christ. I'm not keeping it at the forefront. Sometimes we don't like to think too much and too hard about eschatology, the study of the last things, because we, we know it's divisive or we can't know every answer to everything, and so we give up. It's what some have said, and you know, when asked, are you premillennialist, amillennialist, postmillennialist, you say, I'm a panmillennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> well, that's the lazy answer. It's not going to give you hope because you're not even thinking about it. I think what we're going to do is going to help us with this because we're going to be forced to think about it. Regardless of some of the details, there should be excitement as we're studying this, as we're digging into it, as we're reminding ourselves of these things. There's another possibility. That's that you don't know Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You don't know Him as your Savior. And if you don't know Him, or you don't know Him as your Savior, there is no hope. It's hopeless. And if that's you this morning, if you have not repented of your sins, if you are still living under the judgment of God, then please do not leave this morning without talking to myself, talking to one of the other persons you've seen up here, maybe someone you're sitting next to, and ask them, how can I have that hope? The short answer is, cry out to the Lord. 
He will not turn any away. Confess your sins. Romans 10.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful, He is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So another question I think we need to ask is this. Does the immediacy, the imminency of Christ's return and the fact that we are living in the last days motivate you to love your neighbor and proclaim the gospel? Maybe even another way of asking it is, how are you doing with loving your neighbor and proclaiming the gospel? And then asking, how can I get better at that? And asking, do I really think eschatology can help me with that? Do I really think the study of Christ's return in the end of this age can help with that? The answer should be yes. Think about that urgency that we talked about just a short bit ago. If we know Christ will return, if we know that there is judgment for the unbelieving, then shouldn't we be busy sharing the gospel and caring for others? Those two are to be joined together. That's what James says, right? We don't just say be warm and be filled. Care for others. Love them. But then don't just fill them up and warm them. Share the gospel with them. Preach to them with a sense of urgency as dying men to dying men. I think the reason we're not motivated by that, the reason we're not motivated by love for others is, one, we either don't believe that in the promises of God. Probably more likely is we have don't understand them or we've forgotten them or perhaps not even studied them enough. And so as we go through this study, our goal together is going to be to develop a stronger hope in the coming of Christ and to develop a greater love for our neighbors through it and a greater love for this world because of it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for how much you have revealed about your coming, even things we don't fully understand. Father, I'm firmly convinced that when you return, a lot of us are going to stand there with, and have a bunch of aha moments. As we understand more clearly and perfectly what you meant. But Father, everything that has been given has been given for our hope, for our encouragement. Help us to persevere. Help us to engage. Help us to think diligently upon these things. Father, I pray that as we study these things, that we would just develop a greater and deeper love for you. As we understand what it is that you have done for us, what it is that you have promised to us, what it is that we hope in. Father, help us to to have that understanding so that we can have the hope. Father, most importantly, we thank you for your son who came that first time, some 2,000 years ago, who lived a sinless life on this earth as an example, as a testimony to us, Father, who died bearing our sins on the cross, on his own body, who died for our sins, who was raised again the third day according to the Scripture, and now sits at, the, sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, thank you that we can come and worship that Lord and Savior. 
Thank you that through him we have access to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.